Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. On today's episode, we have Thea Flowers. She's the creator of Knox, a command line tool that automates testing in multiple Python environments similar to Tox. She is co-chair of PyCascades 2019. She's the lead maintainer of URLeb3, the most downloaded package on PyPI. She's a member of the Python Packaging Authority and Packaging Working Group. She works on API client libraries and community outreach for Google Cloud Platform. And all of that is very cool, and some of it we'll talk about in this interview. But first, we're going to geek out on a cool project she's working on to make a synthesizer module based on Sega Genesis chips. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. They've been so awesome in sponsoring this last bit of 2018, and I really appreciate it. Check them out at testingcode.com slash DigitalOcean. So today on Testing Code, I have invited uh, Thea Flowers. And uh, Thea, thank you for coming on the show. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And um, there's a ton of stuff we want to talk about. But um, before we get into it, and I really want to nerd out about Sega Genesis and stuff. So uh, introduce yourself. Who are you? Yeah, so I'm Thea Flowers. I am a self-proclaimed Pythonista. I work at Google on their developer relations team. I do all kinds of stuff. As you mentioned earlier, I'm a little bit everywhere in the Python community, from making you know things like Knox to maintaining your lib3 to working with the Python Packaging Authority. I'm kind of all over the place. And we'll touch on this at the end, but you're also involved in the PyCascades, right? Yeah, I'm the co-chair for 2019. Okay. I'm used to seeing your name like all over the place recently with a lot of the stuff that was going on recently with uh, the Python packaging and all of the PipEnv and all sorts of stuff like that. However, what really intrigued me and wanted me to have you on the show is you've been playing around with Sega Genesis. I just have briefly looked at some of your, uh, there's like three blog posts so far on this, but tell me what's going on with you and Sega. Yeah, so my blog posts are hilariously behind on where I'm actually at with the synthesizer. Okay. But um, I recently got into like hardware hacking about a year ago, and um, I got into it because I love to tinker with music. I used to be a professional musician, and I was never very good at it, but what I was good at was like being the guitar tech for my band and like making sure everything was running smoothly. And um, that sort of tinkering attitude sort of transferred over later in life when I decided to start playing with synthesizers. So I always wanted to build one, but I had never like found the inspiration, right? The ones that I had were enough fun to play with that I never felt like I needed to actually build one, but I wanted to. And then I had this crazy idea of, oh, I love the way that music sounds in the Sega Genesis. Maybe I could build a synthesizer using either a Genesis directly or using the sound chips from the Sega Genesis itself. And so that's what I ended up doing was using the sound chips directly and talking to them from a microcontroller and being able to create a MIDI-controlled synthesizer using those sound chips. Where did you get Genesis sound chips? It's actually pretty interesting. So Yamaha, so the sound chip inside the Genesis, the Yamaha YM2612, and Yamaha produced like a huge broad range of these chips, like from everything to like really small toy keyboards that you would get at Walmart to like sophisticated production 
Ready synthesizers like the Yamaha DX7, which you can hear in like hundreds of tracks in the 80s, including Michael Jackson and stuff. So Yamaha produces huge range of chips, and they were using all different kinds of places. The thing is, they, they definitely don't produce this chip anymore. They don't produce the YM2612 anymore. But they produce enough of them back in the 80s, and all of our junk gets shipped over to China, and they recycle it. They extract what they can that's valuable, and then they resell the parts, essentially. Okay. So it's actually not hard at all to get your hands on a YM2612 that's either harvested from a Sega Genesis or one of the Yamaha keyboards or one of the arcade cabinets that it lived in. Since I'm not a music nerd, <laughs> this chip, is that affect? how is that affecting the sound? When you make a synthesizer of this, does it sound like an old Genesis game? Or? It does. So... What's super cool about this chip in particular and about the Sega Genesis sound is that it's kind of like the last of its kind and like also like one of the first of its kind. Like way back in the day, CPUs were too slow to do like real time audio playback. You know, like I'm sure people listening to this podcast are enjoying real time audio playback as they listen to it. Old consoles couldn't do that. It just took too much memory, too much CPU power. So they had like dedicated chips that basically the CPU just told it a note and how long to play. And the chip would go and play that note. And it would have like one or more sound channels so you could play multiple notes. But the ones in the Nintendo's entertainment system and the Game Boy and stuff like that were very simple. They could do square waves. Which, um, if you can remember the Super Mario theme in your head, it sounds very much like that. However, the Genesis kind of took this to the next level. It was like, okay, we can do something like that, where we have a chip that you tell it notes and duration, but let's also make it where you can do all different kinds of timbres at the same time. And so the idea here is you use FM or frequency modulation synthesis, which is exactly what you would hear in like the 80s and things like that with those synthesizers, and stuff a, a tiny FM synthesizer essentially into the console so that the, the console can essentially synthesize the sound in real time and play it back. So you kind of like have this amazing six-channel synthesizer living inside of your Sega Genesis. That's amazing. I didn't know that. And then the PlayStation came out, and then we had audio playback and all this stuff, and we didn't need it anymore because then you could just record whatever instruments you wanted to and throw it on an audio track. But the Genesis was like this awesome like limitations, which tend to breed creativity. And so that was really cool to have that sort of chip. So that's why I'm very excited to build a synthesizer using that distinctive voice of that chip. This is, seems like all very hardware-y and stuff. And you've got like uh, circuit diagrams and stuff like this on your, on your like you said, not up-to-date blog posts. <laughs> but did you do hardware engineering at some point? Or is this stuff you just learned on your own? No, I never went to college. So this is all just me guessing, essentially. <laughs> yeah, so like a lot of, like the hardware here is not excessively complicated. It's a mix of a digital circuit, which can be relatively easy to work with, mm. and an analog circuit for the audio amplifier, which was actually the most difficult part for me. So yes, no background in electrical engineering. What I did was essentially like just stitch things together from the internet. I found a Sega Genesis hardware mod for better audio, like clearer audio. And I took the schematic for that and just recreated it in KiCad and then had like prototyped it on a, on a you know, little proto board and then sent it out for manufacturing when I had a PCB ready. And I actually learned how to make PCBs for this project, which is really interesting and fun. But the rest of it, like talking between the microcontroller and the, um, the sound chip, um, like the hardware part of that's really easy. You basically just wire up eight lines from one, from one thing to the other. Uh, the really tricky part is talking to it via software because there's almost no documentation for this chip. Okay. So, yeah. 
So a lot of that was reverse engineering and looking at old Sega Genesis emulators to see how things worked. And uh, probably a lot of trial and error. Oh my God, yes. Holy crap, so much trial and error. I'm still not 100% certain about my timing calculations on the thing, but it works well enough and it seems to work in real time when I'm pressing notes, so it's... I guess it's okay. Now, what's the end goal here? Just to to have a uh, like a a full keyboard based on the on this, or what? Yeah, you know, like it's it's one of those things where I got like halfway through, and I'm like, what am I actually going to do with this when I'm finished? <laughs> Other than just have a cool story to tell. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, um, you know, I do want to have a synthesizer that has that unique voice and be able to render, like, basically render some songs using this like specific hardware. But also, like, I wanted to see about like breathing new life into Sega Genesis tracks because when you have an, like a, a separate synthesizer and you can kind of give it like all the attention of one instrument. So, like a lot of Sega Genesis tracks, they all had to play on the synthesizer. Like all the instruments had to share the synthesizer essentially. So you have six channels. So you can basically have six instruments playing that have one note, or you can have like one instrument with two notes and then four with one note. But when you have the full six voices available to you for one instrument and you can do multi-tracking like you can today, then you can like add effects and you can do like really interesting stuff with that synthesizer sound that they couldn't do on the hardware itself, but still using the original hardware. So one of the things I've thought about doing is like rendering some of these old tracks that I love using the synthesizer, but also with modern production and effects and things like that. Oh, that'd be cool. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on it. Where, so where is it at now? What's the state of things? Yeah, so hardware-wise, I'm basically done. I have printed circuit boards for every major component that work, and I've assembled, so they're working great. I have an enclosure that I've designed and I've cut out of cardboard at this point. <laughs> so it's sitting in cardboard, but I'm going to like actually laser cut it out of uh, acrylic so it has a nice, beautiful case to sit in. So hardware's done. The software is where like I'm not quite done yet. It's actually completely playable and like actually pretty fun to play with right now, which is one of the problems. Every time I go to work on it, I get distracted and <laughs> just end up just playing play. with it for like an hour. But I need to add a few more features, like some like switching between monophonic and polyphonic mode, saving and loading patches, uh, which you can load patches right now. You can't modify them and then save them back. Okay. But a few other things that I need to do as well. But yeah, like I'm really closing into the end here. Which again, like as I get closer to the end, it gets harder and harder for me to work on it because I just want to play with it. So yeah, it's it's super fun, and I'm very close to being done. Okay, cool. I guess maybe I'll just ask you on the air here: Is this going to show up at a PyCon anytime so that we can hear it in person? I would love to. It's it's very portable, so I could definitely bring it along. I've thought about how to do a talk on it, and it's actually really hard to do it like a you know, 30 minute or one hour talk on something like this because it's so complicated. So I need to like find a way to break it down into something that's like easily comprehensible in 30 minutes or 45 minutes and give a talk on it somewhere, in which case I'll bring it and actually demo it for people because it is actually really cool to see this thing work. Okay, well I'm going to put in a like a even a, just a plug for or a request for even just an open session where we could just sit around and like, you know, ask questions and listen to it and stuff like that. Yeah. So how do you play it right now? Is it just all software based or is it hooked up to a keyboard? It's a MIDI module. So um, lots of synthesizers, especially like higher end synthesizers, will come in both a keyboard format. So they have like, you know, a big keyboard and they have like all the little knobs at the top. But a lot of them will also come in what they call module format, which is um, just a standalone thing okay. that just has all the knob parts, but none of the keyboard parts. And these are great because if you're in a big studio, you would have like one master MIDI keyboard and you would have all these other modules hooked up and wired in. 
And essentially, you could use software to select which one you want to actually play. So I've designed this as a module. So you can hook any keyboard up to it then? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I've also thought about, at some point, actually embedding it into a, a keyboard to, to make it even more portable. Okay. Yeah, so we'll see. I haven't decided what I'm going to do with that yet. But I can move it either way at this point. Well, now I'm jealous and I kind of want to get into music and keyboards and stuff like that. Because that just sounds like fun. And a complete waste of time. But <laughs> not in a bad way. Just, uh, you know. Uh, a fun, fun hobby. It's definitely an intense hobby, and for, be prepared to just set fire to a stack of cash because whew, <laughs> instruments are expensive. <laughs> well, and uh, I guess probably sending out for printed circuit boards and stuff like that probably isn't super cheap either. Oh my god, it's so cheap! I think it like so for the boards. So I had three boards made for my synthesizer. Each one costs five dollars for five boards. What? Yeah, like through China. Uh, there's like like PCB Way, like and some others have like just prototyping services like this. Uh, okay. There's limitations, but five dollars and then like twelve dollars shipping. So you know it comes out to about you know twenty four dollars or something like that. I can't remember exactly with taxes and everything. And then uh, yeah, they come they show up about a week later, and then you're good to go. Oh, I thought it'd be like hundreds or something. No, it's it's amazingly cheap. I was really surprised myself. I was like, what? <laughs> wow. Okay. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. DigitalOcean is the preferred cloud platform of hundreds of thousands of innovative companies. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, manage, and scale applications with an intuitive control panel and API designed for developers. Get started with a free $100 credit towards your first project on DigitalOcean and experience everything the platform has to offer, such as cloud firewalls, real-time monitoring and alerts, global data centers, object storage, and the best support anywhere. Join over 150,000 businesses already creating amazing things on DigitalOcean. Claim your credit today at testandco.com slash DigitalOcean. Okay, so I'm going to like just harshly apologies to everybody listening, change gears completely and ask you about some other stuff. Awesome. So one of the things that you've done is Nox, N-O-X. So Nox, I'm assuming is uh, something kind of like Tox. So tell me more. What is Nox? Yeah, so Nox is, is very much kind of like Tox. Tox is like this direct spiritual ancestor to Nox. Nox is a test automation tool, just like Tox. It creates virtual ims and lets you install things into it and run commands. The big difference between Tox and Nox is that Tox uses this any file for configuration, which is totally cool. Nox uses a Python file for configuration, sort of like Fabric or PyInvoke, and like that gives you a lot more flexibility. So it's like this, you kind of imagine a continuum, right, of, of project complexity, where on one end you can use Tox and like out of the box works fine for you. And then like in the middle somewhere is Nox because you need a little bit more advanced things. And then like all the way on the other end of the spectrum is things like Pi Invoke and Make and things like that, where you basically are creating a bespoke, you know, automation tool for your, your project. So like Nox sort of sits in the middle of that little spectrum there. And, um, it's actually really awesome. It's been amazing for, for me at work. So, um, Google manages. 50 or so client libraries for our products. And we also manage around 15,000 samples for things. And having a tool like Knox that can help test that Hydra 
of clients and samples is really, really useful. So that's actually where it came from. We were using uh, Tox for a long time and we ended up with this Tox any file that was absolutely crazy. I think it was like 200 lines of any code and then like a bunch of helper scripts. And we're like, this is wild. Let's take a step back and see what we can do. And we ended up with Knox. And then um, it, we open sourced it, or uh, rather I open sourced it. And then um, the community sort of jumped in on that. And it's, it's got you know, several contributors now and has been adopted by several several projects, so it's really neat to see that that grow. Okay, so that's cool. Like, um, uh, one of the things that I've done with Tox is a, like a matrix-style test uh, setup. So is, can uh, Knox do matrix testing as well? Yeah, yeah. So Knox is actually really, really awesome at this. We basically stole PyTest's parameterization thing, if you're used to that, which is like kind of an advanced feature of PyTest. But um, basically, like because each knock session is a function, you can add the parameterization thing on top of it and basically create a test matrix out of all the parameters you specify. And Knox will create sessions for all of them. And just like with Tox, you can individually address sessions in the matrix, but you can also just run the top level session and it'll run every session in that matrix, which is really cool. Okay. One of the things I'm looking at just at the at the homepage of the Knox documentation it shows a couple of decorators use like Knox.session and then a, a function inside there. Do each of these uh, have, uh, I guess, the output of this? Can I use it in continuous integration? Does it have a pass fail sort of thing then? Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of thing is super important to us, you know, when we were creating Knox is like, not only do we need like this to run under continuous integration and like say pass fail based on, you know, sessions like, did all the sessions pass or did any of them fail? Like that's sort of the default mode. But we also have it where it can output a JSON file that has a report of every session, including its output and its status and whether or not it passed or failed. And we actually take that output in our CI systems and transform it into an XML format that's that's ingested by Google's internal systems that can give us a dashboard and stuff like that. So it's like really powerful in that way in terms of reporting and things like that. Now is this a fairly stable and done or is there uh, is there a future roadmap to take it further do you know yeah so i think like the core parts of it are pretty done we had a big major breaking change earlier this year when i um swapped around how sort of Knox's internal engine worked from imperative to declarative or rather the other way around declarative to imperative uh, i can talk more about that later but um essentially like now the core features are done right like the basics are never going to change. Like you have session functions, you call session.run or session.install. Like all of that is never going anywhere. We have some ideas for new features such as breakpointing and things like that. Breakpointing actually would let you set a breakpoint in your Knox session. So you can use the Python 3637 breakpoint function and it would actually drop you into a shell in that virtual env and you can then debug and do whatever commands you want to within your virtual env and then you can exit and the session would continue to run. That's a, something we're planning on doing and I've been experimenting with, which is really interesting and challenging but fun. But yes, yeah, like for the most part, we're mostly just going to see new features. Not breaking Knox's interface is in my best interest because when I do, I have to go and update like a hundred different pro- projects um, <laughs> that I own. Okay. So, you know, that's a huge motivating factor for me not to break things. Okay, so it's being and it's definitely being used uh, regularly now, at, at the very least by you and and other people. So it's it's yeah. it's going to live for a while. Okay, 
Yeah. Okay. The other thing now, I don't even know how to do this since you do so much other than doing harsh transitions. (laughs) You told me that you are the lead maintainer for URL Lab 3. Yeah. What does that mean to be the the, uh, lead maintainer? Good question. You know, like with any project, there's like different kinds of maintainers, right? And your Lib3 is an interesting project. It is, by the way, the most downloaded Python package, which is scary to think about me being the lead maintainer of something like that. But effectively, your Lib3 has been around for a long time. It's had several lead maintainers, which is a huge like testament to Andrew, the original creator's ability to find more people to take over his project. Like that is such a rare skill to see in open source. Most of the time, these just get abandoned. So, you know, that's awesome. But um, effectively, my job as lead maintainer is to, because there are other contributors and there's like Seth Michael Larson, who's like effectively the, uh, the current maintainer of the project. Uh, my job is basically just to handle administration, like making sure that we have everything turned on that we need turned on and settling any like debates or disputes or anything like that and helping out with code reviews and things like that. So like, in terms of like actual code on your sub three, I do very very little. But in terms of like administration, like accepting sponsorships or con- or like financial contributions, or helping onboard new contributors or a code review and things like that, I help out a lot. Okay. So now, what is your lib three? Is that that is that something I have to pip install? Then it's not. It doesn't come with Python. Right. Yeah. So if. You probably use your Lib3 and don't even realize it because it's the underlying HTTP library that Request uses. So Request is like this, this beautiful porcelain on top of your Lib3. Not that your Lib3 has a bad interface, but Request makes it that much easier. And so you know, Pip uses your Lib3 through Request, and then almost every project that uses Request uses your Lib3 as well. But yeah, you'd have to Pip install it. It is a third-party library, so to speak. Okay. Would I want to use it directly, or do I, is it best to use through request? Like most users would want to use it through request. However, there like are certain cases where you want to use your lib three directly, or at least like drop down in requests to the your lib three layer and configure some things. So when you think about things like um, like using proxies, sometimes you have to drop down to the your lib three layer. If you want to use different types of uh, of like protocols and things like that, your lib three can help with that because it's not just an HTTP client. If you want to like interact with things like weird environments, like you know things that have limited access or has to access HTTP through a weird interface, like microcontrollers or um, or things like that, like your Lib three has a pluggable interface to add in extra connection management for that. If you want to change how connection management works, like if you want to make the connection pool a hundred connections or one connection. You would do that through configuring your Lib3, okay. even if you're using a request. Yeah. Now, what is uh, Y3? <laughs> yeah, so that's actually kind of a funny thing about the, um, the sort of naming conventions of Python HTTP libraries. And I think this is maybe one of the reasons why request is so successful, is because request went with a really easy, non-comedic like, name for it. So it's a very obvious thing, like, oh, what do I use to make HTTP requests? I use request. Your Lib3 was kind of born out of this thing where, um, you know, we had in the standard library HTTP lib, and we had your lib, and we had your lib2, and all these lib in the standard library, and it's kind of like these are all building on top of each other. And then at some point, someone released HTTP lib2, which was a third li- third party library. And I guess the creator of your Lib3, Andrew, was like, oh, okay, let's let's create one that can do you know thread safety and um, session and pull management, and we'll call it your Lib3. 
And it just stuck. And then, you know, it's too late to change it now. So is it built underneath it in how it's implemented? Is it using URLib2 then underneath? No, actually, you're actually testing my knowledge of, okay. <laughs> of how deeply I understand the I believe it uses the socket interface directly. Okay. It very possibly uses like things like uh, some of the, the standard library components to do serialization and things like that. But I think for the most part, we. It's a complete replacement and doesn't depend on those things because some of those libraries are actually removed in Python three. Okay, All right. it' very interesting. Huh. Yeah, I'm just start, actually I'm, I, uh, I've admitted on Twitter just recently that I'm even though as far as being a web developer, I'm not a web developer, but I touched on it for like. All since college, so way way back when, like dinosaurs roamed the earth, and Mozilla was um, was an actual thing. I guess it still is, but when it was the browser, that was when I started, and we did things like Perl scripts uh, in the back end and hand coded HTML. I love it. I wrongly assumed that web development was a bad thing to get into because eventually, just that was going to be like a minimum wage job. And so I chased uh, hardware and stuff like that and got into C++. But I'm getting back into it now. And um, I kept track and and learned uh, PHP for a while and uh, WordPress development and stuff. But in the Python world, I've I've mostly used Flask. And uh, now I'm learning Django. So all of this uh, web stuff just sounds interesting to me, and it's fun. Yeah, there's a lot of things to learn. It's it's really interesting, and I, and you know it's it's a huge part of the Python community. Yeah, yeah, like there's so many resources and so many things to learn. I, I kind of love it. Speaking of community, Python community, you're also involved with uh, PyCascades. Yeah, yeah. So I'm the uh, the co-chair for 2019, along with Alan Zena, and we are so excited for PyCascades. It's going to be super awesome. No, it's coming up here just in February, right? Yeah, February. Oh my God, I don't want to say the date wrong because I always say the date wrong. I think it's the 23rd and 24th. Hold on. I should know the date of my own conference, right? Yes, February 23rd and 24th in Seattle. Okay. So yeah. I have tickets. I don't have a hotel yet, but I have tickets. Awesome. So I'll go even though you didn't accept my talk. But I do like uh, it's interesting. It's actually it's kind of cool to have like a whole bunch of different types of venues because the uh, one of the things I thought was interesting about the Pike Cascades talk proposal process was is it a single track? Yeah, so that was like part of the whole like difficulty with selecting talks is that we had like 250 submissions. We're a single track conference that happens over two days, so we have 20 talk slots. So. It was very hard for us to make those final decisions on like what talks we're actually going to get in because we had so many amazing talks and just twenty slots. So, when at least for part of the the selection process, you don't even you don't look at who's presenting, right? You just look at the proposal text. Yep, the first half is totally blind, and I say totally blind, but. There are some cases where people actually put in identifiable information in their comments, and we're just like, ah! <laughs> and then there was a, a couple where we definitely, um, like, we could tell who it was just from, like, their tone of voice, because it's people we know and, like, yeah. you know, work with, and we're like, oh, I know this person, and we actually have, like, a, a special process for, like, selecting out and saying, I have a conflict of interest on this talk because I know the person. So, yeah, so we, we were very serious about, like, the first half of the selection process must be blind so that we can do a better job of selecting a diverse set of speakers and talks. I'm super looking forward to it because um, I didn't go last year, but I heard tons of 
good things about it. Yeah, last year I was a sponsor. I I, didn't, I wasn't even part of the the team or the volunteers. I was just there, you know, representing Google, and I had such an amazing time. And I was like so excited when they invited me to be the co-chair this year because I was like. <sighs> This is like a dream come true because I, I love this conference and it was super basic. I can't wait to to put my own spit on it in some ways. So, but you being a co-chair, it's uh, extra work, right? Oh yeah, it's 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 extra work. I'm a bit lucky here, and I will admit to being not as big of a contributor as I would have hoped to this project. Like Alan and the other organizers are absolutely incredible, and they have done the majority of the work. I've helped out where I can, you know, with the selection process. I've helped out with. Um, Content and marketing and all that stuff, which is what I'm good at. But you know, in terms of like the actual business side of this thing, making sure everything's running well, the other organizers are so amazing. Nobody could do this sort of thing by themselves, and it's really amazing to be working with these people. Okay, that's cool. Huh. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to doing that. It'd be fun. Not doing that meaning going to the conference. I'm not going to be <laughs> participating and helping put on a conference. That just seems like just so much work. Well, you are welcome to volunteer to get a little taste of it. So, <laughs> Well, it's going to be in Portland next year, I think, right? So That's the plan. The idea is to be in Portland and to rotate between Seattle, Vancouver, and Portland. Yeah. I'm actually, um, even though I've lived most of my life within a day trip from Canada, Never been to Canada. Oh, it's lovely. I'm originally from Georgia, so when I moved to Seattle, I was like, oh, I'm so excited to go to Canada for the first time. <laughs> so yeah, Canada, Vancouver especially is beautiful. So Okay, so we um, talked about the Genesis Project, which I'm really looking forward to playing with. Miura Lib 3, Knox, PyCascades. And I, any of these, we could have jumped in and done like a deep talk about. So I'm actually just going to open it up to people listening. If there's uh, aspects of any of this that you want us to get back together again and talk about, then let us know or have questions. And uh, if anybody's interested in this stuff, where should they go to find out more about you or more about what you're doing? The best way to find me is to go to my website, which is thea.co, so T-H-E-A dot C-O-D-E-S. That has links to my blog, my Twitter, where you can tweet at me if you want to do that. You can also email me if that's what you're into. I also have Calendly set up specific. So Calendly is like this uh, scheduling service for those who don't know. I have one set up specifically for open source stuff. So if you want to talk to me about anything related to open source or Python, you can use that. Um, I actually have it turned off for the rest of the year so I can have a vacation, but I'll be turning it back on in January so people can do that. But yeah, like find me, tweet at me, email me, find me on GitHub. Yeah, just thea.codes. All right, awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on and uh, yeah, have a good Christmas. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring. Grab your $100 credit at testandcode.com slash DigitalOcean. That link is also in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 59. Thanks to Thea for talking with me today. And thank you. Thank you for listening, for sharing the show with friends and colleagues, for pitching in with the cost of the show through Patreon, for giving the show a rating on iTunes, and for checking out DigitalOcean through the link in the show notes. Thanks again to Marco for the audio help. He and DigitalOcean are the reasons you are hearing more of me lately. That's all for now. Go out and test something. <laughs>